You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly podcast in which we look back at the week's biggest news stories and look forward to the election being over. On this week's show, we'll examine a financing scandal that gave five of the parties in Parliament some very unwanted attention. We'll see what's been happening on the campaign trail and how the parties are performing in the polls. We will discuss the voting rights of immigrants in Sweden. And finally, we'll take a closer look at what has made observers describe this year's Swedish election campaign as the most toxic in living memory. I'm Paul Amani, and with me to dissect all this, we have Stockholm University sociologist Andrea Voyer. And in Malmö, we have Becky Waterton and Richard Orange. Hello, everybody. Hello, morning. Hello. I should add that James is on a well-earned break this week and we'll also listen a little bit later to a chat I had yesterday with Christian Christensen, a journalism professor also from Stockholm University. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea. Can you tell listeners a little bit about yourself, where you're from and what you're doing in Sweden? Thanks. Uh, It's great to be here. I am a sociologist at Stockholm University and I joined the faculty there four years ago and it's that which brought me to Sweden. Um, I'm originally from the United States, uh, most recently New York City. Um, and although I came here for the job, I actually have a long history in Sweden. Some of my best friends in undergrad were Swedish, and I started coming. And at some point, we decided to make the move. Great. And we'll be hearing much more from you throughout the show. Um, now, before we get into all the election stuff... Let's talk briefly about Swedish TV. Becky, you've been making some recommendations about what shows to watch if you want to understand Swedish society and Swedish humour. What should we be tuning into? Yeah, so this was basically me making my habit of watching far too much TV into something useful that I could write articles about. So I'd say the the two major tips I have, the first one is Historia Ätana, which is kind of hard to find online now. I don't know if I should say this, but someone has very helpfully uploaded it all to YouTube, which is definitely very illegal. You have these two presenters, Lotta Lundgren and Erik Hag, who um, the premise of the show is that they live in different kind of periods of Sweden's history. So a different decade. It can be anywhere from like somewhere in the 1800s to the 1960s. And they wear the clothes of that decade. They live like the people in that decade and they eat the food of that decade. And I, I think not only is it very entertaining, but it's also a really, really great way to understand kind of Swedish history, Swedish food culture. They have like food historians on that explain why falukorv is really popular or why Swedes love to eat tacos on a Friday. And I just think it's it was one of the first shows I watched when I came to Sweden. And I think it's given me a really big understanding of, of Sweden. So that's my big tip. What about you, Andrea? Do you watch any Swedish TV? Yeah, I do a bit. Um, two, my f- two favourite shows for 
both enjoyment and getting access to insight into Swedish culture are Vår tid är nu, which is also a bit hard to track down right now, uh, but it's such a nice overview of the rise of the welfare state post-war Sweden, and from my perspective, engaging drama unfolding in that rise of Sweden as we know it. It's, a, I think, a great show. And the other one I've really enjoyed is Bonus Familian, which for me has been really interesting as a parent to see this aspects of family life and a Swedish, a somewhat comedic Swedish drama uh, to note aspects of culture in in that form. That's a show I think that's been great for me. How about you, Richard? Do you watch any TV? I'm the most annoying person to have in the house if you are watching TV because I sort of sit down and and my wife watches all the same programs that Becky wrote about. So I know all these programs, but I sit down for sort of five minutes and ask inane questions and then get up and do something else (laughs) driving it absolutely crazy. But I do watch, yeah, so I I mean, I love, I do like some of these house development shows. They have like, uh, what's the, Huströmer. Yeah, that's Yeah, like which is, which is based say. actually normally most of the houses are in school and near us and, and we're developing a house so it's quite good to watch all uh, everyone else's horrific disasters as they unfold let's uh, let's move on to some of the news stories this week so around the time we were recording last week's episode Sweden's TV4 started sending out teasers about an undercover report produced by its investigative journalism flagship show Calafacta and a lot of work went into the investigation in which two businessmen approached each of the eight parties in parliament and said they wanted to make anonymous donations that were much larger than the rules allow and sort of how they could circumvent that. Can you tell us a bit about what happened next and the the fallout Richard? It's an absolute bombshell in Swedish politics. And I think what's what was really clever is that they gave each party the same test and then they followed how each of them reacted. From the start, three parties, the Green Party, the Centre Party and the Left Party, basically just said, no, this is against the rules. I mean, there were lots of really interesting things that the other parties who did try and accommodate this businessman did. I think one of the most incredible was the Liberal Party, which put them in touch with this consultant who's who's someone at Timbro, which is this sort of right-wing think tank. And this guy from Timbro was was acting as a kind of intermediary and was advising them on which conduits they could use to get, to give money to the Liberal Party, which raises questions. I mean, who else is Timbro <laughs> facilitating donations for? I mean, it seemed to be a well-trodden path. And it's similar with the Sweden Democrats. The first thing they said is, we've had this request before. So you're like, this is not just this person, that this is something the party does routinely. The moderate party suggested that instead of giving directly to the party, you can you could either use a stifter, which is a kind of a foundation, or you could give money to another organisation that does things that are in the interest of the moderate party, which doesn't have to declare it, like perhaps Timbro, um, uh, or, or someone like that. So, so it does really show that the idea of sort of making uh, political donations in Sweden more transparent and ruling out corruption has not really worked because they've left lots of loopholes. And, and in the programme, it's quite interesting, they talked to a political scientist that said that at the time, they said that, that allowing a stiftelser, which is a foundation, to give larger donations without saying who's behind the stiftelser was a loophole, but the, but the government didn't close it. So... Perhaps they they didn't want to. As the blowback, I mean, the the Social Democrats were the most decisive. They immediately sacked the person who was responsible and was in the programme. But none of the other parties have done that. In the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at how the parties are campaigning and what stories and soundbites are making headlines. 
Let's scrutinise a few of this week's most talked about stories and then we'll see what the opinion polls are telling us. And we'll start with the Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson, who sparked a lot of debate after an interview with the Dagens Nyheter Daily in which she said, we do not want to have Chinatowns in Sweden. We do not want to have Somali towns or Little Italy's. Our starting point is a society where people with different backgrounds, experiences and income live together and meet one another. That's how we will create a cohesive society. Now, Andrea, this is really your area of expertise and you were not impressed by the Prime Minister's comments. Can you tell us what it was about them that you found so objectionable? Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of us who've been working in this area and actually immigrant integration is a bread and butter topic of sociology. Mm. More than 100 years worth of research on this topic. And the thing that's so disappointing, there are two things really that are so disappointing about these, this comment is first, it's inaccurate. And second, it actually actively undercuts the goal of integration and social cohesion. It's inaccurate because it suggests that immigrant neighborhoods, and which are something that often in sociology we refer to as ethnic enclaves, it suggests that these are homogeneous, isolated places. Um, but in fact, Generally, and especially in Sweden, these are the neighborhoods where there is a mixing of languages, of cultures, of religions, of experiences, economic situations. Just an example, uh, Rinkeby, Mm. which is one of these neighborhoods so frequently discussed, it's many, many nationalities are represented in that neighborhood, not just Somali, but also people from Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Ethiopia, Greece, Poland, China. So the idea that um, these neighborhoods are somehow not actually representing the ideal that Anderson's laying out here is just inaccurate. But it's it's more than that. It also really works against the ideas and the goal of integration to point out these neighborhoods and talk about them like this. The fact is that, as I said, sociologists have a hundred years of research that points out that immigrant neighborhoods are a natural part of the process of immigrant settlement and immigrant integration. It's difficult to arrive and adapt to a new country, and immigrants often settle near one another and develop networks with each other. They do this as a way to adapt. Immigrants frequently experience a negative impact on their credentials and their social standing as a result of migration. They're encountering a new bureaucracy. They need to learn a new culture and language, and often other immigrants are the people who are best equipped Mm -hmm. to help them. And so... Attacking enclaves is, a, is really counterproductive since enclaves are shown to have a role in helping immigrants into society. One of the big ways in which this happens is through the formation of immigrant organizations in these neighborhoods. And research shows that when governments actually embrace these neighborhoods, partner with immigrant organizations, that has a facilitating effect. Mm. People feel a greater sense of belonging. They're more likely to acquire citizenship and to do it more quickly. They're more likely to participate in the political process. So it's really disappointing to see this kind of talk, which undercuts that bridge that pathway, and also cast dispersions and stigmatizes these neighborhoods, which are generally a healthy adaptation. Sweden has seen a big increase in gang crime and and shootings in recent years, which is kind of why these ethnic enclaves have come to the fore in the debate, and that's why the Prime Minister is talking about them. What 
you've kind of touched on this, but what do you think Sweden should do to reverse that trend? Yeah, so... Uh, there certainly is an observed link between gang involvement and immigrant neighborhoods in the literature. And the research consensus is that the reason for this is less about any kind of a cultural clash, but more uh, that the rise of gangs in such neighborhoods is the result of marginalization of immigrants in the new country. Lack of access to, for example, as you guys have discussed on this very podcast, access to credit. And through legitimate means, for example, um, having your credentials recognized, access to the housing rental market. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you have these kind of problems, you are likely to see the rise of gangs and youth are also most vulnerable. So if you have a very young immigrant population, you tend to see more of these problems. But taking down entire neighborhoods is like dealing with a precision problem with a sledgehammer. It really doesn't get at the problem. The response should be aggressive, working on eliminating gangs and eliminating gang leadership, pulling them out of these neighborhoods, programs for the youth who are most at risk for joining gangs. And then again, actively embracing and working with these communities. So instead of them being isolated, that the ethnic enclave becomes a bridge into Swedish society. So speaking of bridges, I don't know if you saw this campaign from the from the Sweden Democrats this week where they wanted to tear down the bridge between Sundbyberg and Rinkeby, exactly, this neighborhood that you just precisely. mentioned. And it's interesting that the, the Swedish Democrats are happy to talk about tearing down the bridge, which is obviously contrary to the goals of immigration. But I think the disappointing thing for me is seeing how the Social Democrats seem to be quite willing to tear down the symbolic bridges mm. and the practical bridges that, Im- that help immigrants to get into society. I read an article on that bridge where people living on kind of both sides of the bridge, so like the, the more ethnic Swedish area and then the the more immigrant area and everyone on both sides of the bridge was saying we like this bridge like I don't live in Rinkeby but there's buses that leave from there that I can get into town there's shops there so like it's not that no one ever goes into these two areas and it seems like the way to get rid of a quote-unquote parallel society is not by making it more parallel like the whole point of integration is it's not one way it's not just that immigrants join Swedes it's also that Swedes join immigrants you need people to kind of go in both directions it is exactly like symbolic and real bridges like if you isolate a community they're only going to become more isolated they're not just going to magically become swedish overnight and start eating falukorv and watching tidbitsteder like that's not how it works no that term parallel societies, I, I saw that you you said something about that on, on Twitter because it, like we spoke about Denmark in a, a recent episode where they had this ghetto law and then they changed the terminology to parallel societies. But you sort of argued that that term shouldn't be used either. I don't think these areas should be seen as parallel societies. I was just talking about ethnic enclaves as an adaptive mechanism. It's adaptation to the difficulty of migration, but it can also be adaptation to stigmatization and exclusion. And so when you see the persistence of these neighborhoods over time, it's usually speaking to two things, one of two things or both. First, continued migration. So new people are coming. It keeps the neighborhood alive. Or... People are stuck there because they're excluded from society. There was a study that came out a few years ago looking at Somali immigrants and comparing the trajectory of inclusion of Somali immigrants in Sweden, the UK, the US and Canada. 
And one of the main conclusions that was drawn in this report is that Somali immigrants, wherever they arrive, generally feel that it's really important to build Somali community organizations and local Somali identity, cultural festivals, all of these kind of things. And that in most of the countries studied, the states, local governments really embraced this and people really embraced coming to Somali cultural festivals and Somali Independence Day festivals. And so that through their involvement in that organization and through the organization of a Somali community, there was this pathway to a more solidaristic society, cohesion at the level of broader community. And what the report concluded is that in Sweden, there is resistance, hostility and suspicion when these groups arise. Um, the idea of that uh, there shouldn't need to be a Somali group, Sweden has it covered, that the perspective on the part of the state that the rise of these kind of groups signals a parallel society and signals social distrust. And so because Sweden generally tries not to work with these groups in most ways, that pathway to inclusion is stymied, it's, it's blocked. To one extent, I mean, I think there is a slight positive silver lining to all this, which is that since I've been living in Sweden, you know, it's self-evidently a massively segregated society. It's not good that 90% of the people living in Rinkeby and Rosengård and all of these suburbs, that, that it's so segregated. It's like 80, 90% of people with an immigrant background and almost nobody with an ethnic Swedish background. That, I think that is an issue, you know, even if ethnic clusters do have a, a, a play a valuable role. I think that, that the segregation in Sweden is extreme and nobody's talked about it. So to one extent, I think it's quite good that it's become an issue that's talked about in the election. It's not it's not entirely negative. But I think people aren't talking about it as it's like healthcare. No one no one kind of you can say that there's issues with the healthcare system, but it just feels like when you talk about segregation, the only answer is all these immigrants need to just get their act together and do better. It's not like how can we help with segregation? How can we make people feel more welcome? How can we ensure that it's easier for people to get a job in Sweden, to get somewhere to live in Sweden? Like, are people living in these areas because they can't get on the housing queue in other areas? They can't buy property in other areas? Like, it's just saying all these lazy immigrants can't be bothered working. It's like, well, why aren't they working? Is there a reason that they can't get jobs? Is that could you do something to make it easier for them? So I think it's fine that people are talking about integration and segregation now, but it's still only in a negative sense. It's only in the sense of people aren't doing it instead of in the sense of can we make it easier for people to integrate? And they're actually missing a big part of the story, which is the main driver of segregation is that ethnic Swedes do not move to neighborhoods with a lot of immigrants. One thing I do when I teach is I have my students run segregation models. And what they learn through that exercise is that the self-segregation of the majority population is usually what drives segregation. And that's not part of the discussion at all. Yeah, you get, you get parallel societies of Swedes, like 100% Swedish areas. Right. And actually, and it's, it's the ethnic majority in Sweden and in most countries that is the most isolated and the most segregated. And so it would be interesting to talk about that. Why do so few Swedes opt to live in areas where there are immigrants and immigrant restaurants and things like that? Uh, if we see this as a problem, we have to look at both sides of the issue. And that's not the case in the UK. In London, people want to live in the areas with a Caribbean population or, a, or a, in, and in New York. Those areas have, they're exciting. They draw sort of curious young people. 
Right. And then you sometimes run the opposite problem where so many members of the the majority want to live in these neighborhoods that you run the risk of gentrification, of driving out people um, by driving up rents and things like that. Um, we don't seem to have that problem here in Sweden. And so the question is, why are people who are Swedish reluctant to live around immigrants? Yeah, I think I think this is kind of what Anders Ugerman was touching on when he made this this comment about no more than 50% non-Nordic. And I think if he had framed that in a way that was like, we want to aim to make these areas more attractive to Swedes, how can we do that? Instead of it being like, we want to get rid of the immigrants in this areas, then I think it could have been a very good policy. I mean, and to be fair, that is what Magdalena Andersson said in, in the interview with Dagens Nyheter, where she made this comment about Little Italy. She said, you don't have to kick people out. You can make attractive housing in these areas that will bring people from the majority population there. That that was her, the one policy suggestion she made for countering this was that it was to bring Swedes to Rinkeby rather than the other way around. And I think one of the things about dynamics of segregation is typically what we see is the members of the majority, so that would be ethnic Swedes in this case, tend to have a lower threshold. So maybe they're like, I would love to have immigrants in my neighborhood, maybe 25%. And then when you talk to people from an immigrant background and you say, so what kind of mix would you like in your neighborhood? Well, I'd like to have probably about 50-50. Just as an artifact of this difference in preference, that is enough over a lot of people's housing choices to drive segregation. So I think it really has to be addressed. This idea of 50% Swedes is great, but it really doesn't speak to the preferences that people generally state, that Swedish people generally put out. On Tuesday, a bus emblazoned with the message New Energy for Sweden was very much in the headlines when it parked up at the Forsmark nuclear power facility on the East Coast. What was the background to this? What made this bus so newsworthy, Becky? It was just a complete shambles. So you have the four opposition parties, and especially the moderates campaign has all been... Ulf Christensen's only argument for why you should vote for the moderates, basically, is we've collected four parties that all agree on everything. Here's all the things we agree on. And then they sent them out on this bus tour and they couldn't agree on what it was. The Sweden Democrats had kind of posted flyers and everything saying, yeah, we're going on an election tour. This is an election campaign. And then the Christian Democrats said it was a power tourneur, so like a power tour, which sounds very exciting. And then the, the Liberals said, no, it's absolutely not an election campaign. It's just a study trip. So it was all kind of this this big kind of image that they all agree on everything. And it was just like, you can't even decide what it is you're doing. And it's all because they, they all say that we should have nuclear power. But So they're traveling around to all of the different nuclear power plants in Sweden. But it's just kind of unclear what the point of it is. And it seems to be just like signal politics, but then they're kind of all sending mixed signals. Why were the Liberals so uncomfortable with the whole thing? Because the Liberals, even as recently as the last election, even, yeah, very recently have said that they won't work with the Sweden Democrats. And then they've kind of switched over to say, OK, no, we will work with the Sweden Democrats. But that's obviously caused issues within the party. So people within the party weren't very happy when they heard that the Liberals were going on this election tour. As we mentioned in previous episodes, this election has long been on a knife edge is that still the case? What are the opinion polls telling us at the moment? Who's likely to be celebrating and who will be drowning their sorrows on the 11th of September? It's absolutely still the case. The polling is firstly absolutely on a knife edge. It's impossible to know really who will be best placed to form a government 
uh, after September the 11th. But the two sides are so close and also the polls are quite volatile. So especially um, this week, SVT and Nova started publishing daily polls and they're jumping about, you know, quite dramatically from giving the the left the left side of politics the advantage at the beginning of the week and now in the most recent poll the right side was quite quite substantially ahead so so it seems to be very volatile indeed and in terms of if you narrow it down to the individual parties the Sweden Democrats have made massive progress. So there was a poll that got a lot of attention at the start of this week that put them four percentage points ahead of the moderates. And that was that was confirmed in, in a poll the next day, which is also not surprising because throughout most of this year, the focus has not been on the Sweden Democrats. It's been on NATO and and big government things, which, which it, it, on NATO and then you know, over the last few years, it's been on the pandemic. So the Sweden Democrats haven't had the airtime they need. So now they've suddenly got the airtime that's translated into additional votes. It's not just the national election being held on September the 11th. Let's also look at what other elections are coming up and who can vote in them. Becky. So, yeah, it's like like you said, there's, there's actually three elections happening all at the same time. There's a parliamentary election, the county election and the municipal election. So the parliamentary election, you have to be a Swedish citizen to vote in that and you have to be over 18. But interestingly, the municipal and county elections, if you are an EU citizen or a citizen of Iceland and Norway, then you can vote in those elections no matter how long you've been in Sweden, as long as you're kind of registered as living here. And then if you are not an EU citizen, then you have the right to vote in county municipal elections if you've been registered as living in Sweden. So you've got a person number, you're in the Folkbokföringsregister, the, the Swedish Population Register for three consecutive years before the vote. So you can vote here if you've been here for at least three years, even if you're not a Swedish citizen. Annoyingly, I've been here for two years and 11 months, so uh, I am not allowed to vote in this election, but you might be able to. And if if you can vote, then you'll get a voting card in the post, um, which will tell you kind of where to vote. And you just need to take that to whatever place is on your voting slip um, with your ID. And you can also vote in advance, can't you, Richard? You've done that, haven't you? I voted yesterday. But one thing I learned, which I, I, hadn't, I hadn't taken on board, is even if you vote in advance, like now or in the next few days, that doesn't mean you can't change your mind. So if, if, one, if the party you voted for, you know, stands up and says something absolutely horrific that you can't abide, you can still go with your voting card to the voting station on the day of the election and vote for another party. And your first vote, I don't know how they do it, will then be cancelled. Yeah, I was actually very excited to get my voting card because I'm right now, I've been waiting six months for a decision from Migerhansverket on a renewal. And I thought that maybe that meant I was going to be disenfranchised. But in fact, it, it didn't at all because I am still in the population register and my card showed up. I was really excited. First time Great. voting. Yeah. So you can vote in the municipal and, and uh, the, the regional. regional yes. Yeah. Maybe we should explain briefly what the municipalities and the regions do. What are their powers? So the regional elections, you might think, oh, it's, I'm not choosing the prime minister. It doesn't really count. But things like healthcare are all run by the regions. So if healthcare is an important issue for you, that's definitely something you should vote on. The schools are municipal. Yeah, so schools are municipal. So you can still kind of affect a lot in your local area, even though you can't vote in the parliamentary elections. Yeah, I just think at the more local level, it's, there's also transportation, the built housing, the built environment. All yeah. of those issues are primarily local. And we'll be back after this short break. Hold up. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So we're going to turn now to today's main topic and look at how this election campaign is being conducted by Sweden's political parties. We'll come back to the studio in a few minutes, but first we're going to listen to a conversation I had with Christian Christensen, a journalism professor at Stockholm University and a regular contributor to The Local. This week he wrote on Twitter, I moved to Sweden in 2004 and the current election campaign is the least policy-oriented, most toxic and most xenophobic I have seen by far. On a side note, he also mentioned to me that there was a mistake in the tweet and he actually came to Sweden in 2006, as we'll hear in a moment. Anyway, I asked him why he thought this year's election campaign had become so toxic. Let's hear what he had to say. Well, I moved here in 2006, which was the first year where SD got close to getting into parliament. And uh, one thing that I've noticed with this campaign is that the level of policy discussions is very thin. There's very little discussion of concrete policy, but that's not really the issue that I was worried mm. about. Was It was the sort of proposal of policies like um, doing DNA testing and ADHD testing and you know forcing people to move into segregated areas to increase the uh, Nordic population, which is actually something that came from a social democrat. I think that kind of um, absorption of rhetoric that was pretty much relegated to the Sweden Democrats in 2006, 2010, 2014, we've seen very, very clearly as SD have been fixed on 20%, which they have been for six or seven years now. They're not going up or down. So their support has remained pretty constant. But what has changed is the way in which not only Liberal Party and the moderates and, uh, and Christian Democrats, but even the Social Democrats have begun to absorb I think what many would consider to be quite xenophobic rhetoric. And that's, that's the thing that struck me quite clearly. What kind of reaction have you had to your tweet? I mean, have people agreed with you that this is more um, toxic and xenophobic than ever before? Yeah, I've, you, know, you get a lot of support. And like when you send something like that out, um, you get a lot of people, of course, criticizing you, talking about the problems with immigration and crime. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't think those things are not, uh, you know, criticizing the tone of discussion. And and this is a criticism leveled against not only the right, but also the social Democrats, mm. the prime minister. I've also made comments, and you know, you're going to be discussing, I think, with some of your other guests, a yeah. comment she made about Chinatown and Little Italy. I found that to be a ridiculous comment as well. And then, of course, you get these comments like, well, well there's problems with immigration. But the problem is that the, the kind of rhetoric that we see, where these kind of, what becomes, to me anyway, what it seems to be is quite policy suggestions that really likely have no possibility of actually happening sort of are thrown out 
in an effort to look tough on crime or on immigration. And then later on, you sort of have these, well, I mean, that's not really what we meant, and it's been misunderstood and Mm. that kind of thing. And that's something as an American that I've seen quite a lot, actually, which is, you know, during election campaigns, you see a lot of these extremely tough-talking things about crime and immigration that really, in logical terms, have no possibility of actually becoming law or policy, but they're just meant to look tough. And that kind of superficial level of political discourse, I think is ultimately damaging because what happens is you're basically making policy proposals that you really have no intention of following through on with the sole intention of sort of doing symbolic uh, dog whistle blowing to. And I think the the reactions I get on Twitter are pretty much always the same, which is, you know, you're, you're, you know, defending crime and, you know, illegal Mm -hmm. immigration, things like that. But it's, it's about the tone and the level of the discourse that matters. You can't have a rational, logical discussion about immigration if you continue to have these kinds of discussions. Like, for example, the Sweden Democrat politician who tweeted a picture of the subway train in Stockholm yeah. saying, like, one-way ticket to Kabul for the people on board. But that kind of thing that does absolutely nothing for discussion about immigration other than stigmatize people. Do you see this getting better in future elections? No. I mean, <laughs> I mean, when it starts getting bad, you know, if you told me eight years ago as an American, if you showed me pictures of 12 years ago, you showed me pictures of what's going on right now in the United States, I probably would have believed it, but I wouldn't be particularly, I would be mm. kind of surprised. It's, it's the sort of absence of policy now, and it's more emotionally based argument. And when that happens, you see a sort of an erosion of the democratic process. So we've been listening to Christian Christensen, and we've also been asking readers about this. You ran a survey on the site, Richard, asking for people's impressions of the campaign so far. What have people been saying? I mean, largely, they've had this a similar response that Christian Christensen had. I mean, I think a lot of the responses we had, and we didn't have that many responses. We had about 25 responses, but the overwhelming majority were unhappy and in some cases actually quite frightened by how xenophobic the rhetoric has been, particularly that it's coming from the Social Democrats as well as from the Sweden Democrats, which is where you'd expect that kind of rhetoric and policy to come from. And one person said they were worried about how it would affect their children at school, that the whole climate in Sweden had become so much more critical of immigrants and immigration that it might actually affect their children. And as well as being worried about um, immigration people were worried that issues they really do care about, like healthcare and education, this, which they felt, you know, the standard in Sweden is not actually good enough, wasn't an issue at all. You know, where is the discussion of the long wait to get to see a doctor? Where is the discussion of the fact that my children are 10 and they can't read and write? The <laughs> and, climate uh, you know, crisis. <laughs> where is the climate crisis? And that's You're the other thing. This summer, I'm, I'm baffled by the fact that no one is talking about the climate crisis. Yeah, we ha- yeah, and a lot of people mentioned that as well that the climate crisis had been completely absent from the debate. And um, and that, that that those are the main main things really. I mean there were a few people who are, are sort of economically liberal voters who were saying previously I'd voted for the the moderates but now even they don't feel like they have the solutions for me. So I think people feel as if they've got no one to vote for who reflects the issues that they that are important to them. One other thing I wanted to add really quickly is this, I think it's a bit dangerous to talk about, or dangerous or maybe misguided, to talk about the fact that this talk, this hard talk about immigration is just election time rhetoric that's not going to show up in policy. It's more difficult to move from temporary to permanent status. That has an impact on people's ability to integrate. So, 
these language requirements haven't come down yet. Will they ever? We don't know. But if they they keep getting put out there, if they're part of the policy mix, then we might see them. And so I think it's important to take this talk seriously. It's not just election talk. It's it's where the policy discussions mm-hmm. and the compromises government are starting from. And politicians are saying these things because they think that there's public support for it. And if there's public support for it, then that means it can become policy. I mean, even just what you were saying about the temporary residence permit, that that has affected me. I couldn't get a mortgage on my apartment. I mean, I got one from a different bank, but even just things like that, you want me to integrate, you want me to get into society, but then you put barriers in the way of me actually being able to buy property and kind of build my life here. Yeah, I think one of the main problems people have had with with the campaigning is that it has seemed dishonest. How much can we trust what people are saying, even if these policies will linger and some of them some of them will filter through over time? Is it the case in energy policy, for example, that the politicians are being disingenuous? And I know you wrote an article about this um, yesterday, Richard, and spoke to a couple of experts. Yeah, I mean, the experts I spoke to, one of them said, Uh, I think both of them said this, actually. They said, we don't think that the moderates seriously, genuinely intend to build new nuclear power stations because it is so expensive and it takes such a long time that you would get into government, you would start an reddening, and the reddening would say, it makes no economic sense (laughs) and then it won't happen. So um, it's purely political. And these energy professors in energy systems I spoke to didn't believe that it was actually seriously intended to happen and i think and and they seem to think the same with some of these proposals to have um, high cost protection for people's electricity bills i mean if you bring that in at the levels they're suggesting it will be enormously expensive and also completely counterproductive because it will stop people saving electricity, which will in turn push up power prices and mean that you're pretty much just giving money directly to the power companies. So there is a questions over whether that will be implemented, at least in the way that it's been proposed in the election campaign. So, so yeah, I think there is definitely a likelihood that a lot of the pledges being made at the moment in the heat of the election campaign will never come to fruition but they might you know that's the thing if you've got especially you know when you're needing to build these fragile coalitions you've got the sweden democrats saying we will not back you unless you do x y and z they haven't made any they haven't laid out their demands yet we have no idea what the sweden democrats are going to ask for and if you look at the experience of the the last government when they had to do a deal with the center party the center party laid out a whole load of things and they got a lot of them through which a lot of them extremely painful liberalizations that are very painful to the social democrats and social democrats enacted them. So I don't think you can be certain that nothing nothing will, will, will turn into policy after the election. Before we go, I should ask you, do you think this is the um, ugliest Swedish election campaign you've seen? Uh, definitely that I've seen. In terms of ugly, yeah, in terms of like, it, it's not fact-based, it's not based on real policy. It's the, the, the sort of the, the tenor of the debate that is, is very angry and distrustful and a sort of sort of you know the twitter if you read the twitter feeds it's it's extremely polarized and rude and and there's a lot of vitriol and also you know it's not a nice campaign definitely now, becky and and andrea you're both relatively new to sweden are you surprised by how unpleasant it has been well i lived in denmark before i moved to sweden so i'm kind of used to this <laughs> Um, I moved to Denmark in 2017 and that's kind of when the Danish People's Party got really popular. 
So yeah, this is this all just feels very familiar, unfortunately. On the plus side, I mean, one thing that I love about Swedish elections is the town squares where you have all the valsdugor and you just wander up to some old, you know, Venstre party people or even some old sort of Sweden Democrats and you just chat to them about what what they're doing. And that I've not seen that in any other country, and and it it does give you the sense that democracy in Sweden at the local level is so vibrant. You know, in every town, in every municipality, there are people who are you know, engaged in politics. And it's not just something for people who've been to elite universities. It's for everybody and everyone's involved. And, and it's it's actually really positive. And, I, and that hasn't changed. If you go to the town square in Malmo, there's the same atmosphere. There always is. Hopefully that will stay. That's, that's not going to be threatened. Yeah, I think for me, I've just having been here four years, I really didn't have a sense of things last time around in the last election. So it's really more losing a little bit of how my naivete in terms of holding the social Democrats in really high esteem. And for me, this immigration rhetoric, because I'm a specialist in this area and because I'm an immigrant, has really changed my view of this country in a pretty fundamental way. It's a disappointment, really. Okay, on that note, I think we will end the show. That's all for this week. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter. Our username is Sweden Focus. And don't forget to rate the podcast on your podcast app. Thank you, as always, for listening. And thank you to this week's panellists, Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and Andrea Voyer, as well as our special guest, Christian Christensen and sound engineer Reese Edwards. We'll be back again next Saturday with a new episode of Sweden Focus. Until then, take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage. <laughs>